really, really happy for the bread of life today. Give David Mickelson a warm welcome as he comes and shares as we continue our series, the seven I am statements of Jesus. What do we have today? So I'm supposed to preach on the bread of life. I just happened to bring this as a mid-sermon snack, so I set that there. That worked out really well. Has anyone ever heard a promise from the Lord spoken to you, to your heart, or prophetically, or had a scripture verse jump out at you, and you know God is talking to you, but you also experience a fight. As soon as you hear that message, the enemy comes in and tries to snatch that. That's what we're going to be talking about today relating to the bread of life, because we need as Christians to walk in faith and belief, and that's how we get our total triumph and total satisfaction. So that's where we're going today. How is everybody? Wasn't that worship wonderful? I sure enjoyed that. We had somebody comment on the live stream that they uh, could hear some music playing when Sarah was reading the Bible verse. And at first I was like, all right, we have angels singing in the room, because we've, we've heard that before. And I was all excited, but then it turned out I just had a YouTube video quietly playing that whole time. Some of you may have heard that, so sorry about that. Uh, but maybe there were angels too, you know, you never know. Everything Jesus did in the Gospels and everything he does in your life is carefully crafted and designed to grow your faith, which is another way of saying to draw you close to him. Nothing is wasted. Everything he does in your life is carefully designed to grow your faith. It's very deliberate. He knows you very well, and he's moving very deliberately in your life. Every time Jesus did a miracle, he was doing two things. First of all, there was the physical healing or the deliverance. He was helping the individual. But secondly, he always had an audience, and he was provoking either their faith or their unbelief. He was giving them a choice to believe in him or not. He came to confront the world, didn't he? You know, it's regrettable that in the human condition, just because we see a miracle, it doesn't mean we automatically choose faith. If we did, we would all be believers because the natural world is manifestly a miracle. Just look outside. On the contrary, Christ's miracles, when you read the Gospels, often provoked radical unbelief, so much so that Jesus himself was amazed and distressed by the reactions of people around him. So we're starting today with a mad dash around the Gospels. I would normally be the one putting the verses up, so there's no one doing that, so you're just going to have to believe that I'm really reading the real Bible, or you can be a speed looker-upper. So we're starting with John 7.31, if you can find that real quick. He said, it says, Still, many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? So that's the good example. When you see a miracle, the idea was to provoke faith. But here's the alternative of that. John 12, 37. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Sometimes the belief, the unbelief was not just apathy or dullness. It was actually hostility. For instance, Luke eleven fourteen, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left the man who had been mute and the man spoke, the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So just to be clear, the reaction of that crowd to his miracle was to say he's partnering with Satan. That's a tough crowd. You kind of feel sorry for what Jesus had to put up with sometimes. Very often, Jesus' audience loved the miracle. This is the most common reaction in the Gospels and in the church when we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. We love the miracle, but we miss the point. 
At the end of Mark 6, we see the disciples. They have just witnessed Jesus feeding 5,000 men. It doesn't, they didn't count women and children back then, so it probably was about 15,000 people. And the disciples didn't just witness that miracle. They participated. Jesus said, you feed them. Who was passing out the baskets? Who was experiencing those baskets get heavier as people took food out? It was the disciples. And this is what it says in Mark 6, 52, after the disciples went out on the lake and a storm came up. Later that same exact day, it says, for they, they were terrified. And this is what happened. Why were they terrified? It says, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. So the same day that they saw Jesus in his glory and majesty, they were terrified, which is not a response that's based on faith. How can you be in Jesus' will? He told them to go out on the lake and yet be terrified about what's going to happen. That's not trust. So the, the reason that they blew it was not because they weren't smart enough or not because they weren't whatever. It's just because they were a little bit dull in their hearts. These were the disciples. So these are the people who are supposed to be the good ones. Now, we don't want to be like that, do we? We have to watch for this. So that's what I'm talking about today. Not to be, you know, you love Jesus, you're a believer, but you miss the point of whatever he's doing. So Jesus, he always understands. He understood exactly what was happening. He's, he gets right to the point. He knew what was in you and me. He knew what was in a man or a woman. He loves us anyway, infinitely. Thank God for that, right? This is what he tells Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee who came to Jesus at night, and he has a pretty good heart. He knows that the miracles mean Jesus is from God, but he doesn't yet believe. And this is what Jesus says to Nicodemus. Well, first Nicodemus says this, John 3, 2. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You can see the miracles without seeing the kingdom. You can also see the kingdom in the midst of the worst circumstances. It goes both ways. You can see a miracle and not see the kingdom, but you can also be in the midst of you know, in a jail cell like Paul and Silas, and you can see the kingdom. So it depends on not what's going on with your sight, but your faith. Someone said amen to that. <laughs> so what did Nicodemus do? You know, his heart was tender. He knew when he saw the miracles that Jesus must be from God. But Jesus tells him straight out. Jesus was never afraid of offending people. He tells him, you do not believe. Now, according to church tradition, they say that Nicodemus did become a believer later on, so we can hope for him. But at this point, he's still on his journey. And Jesus tells him, the way for us to become spiritually discerning enough to lose that natural blindness and to be able to see what's really going on, he says, become born again. In other words, choose faith. This is what it says in John three seventeen: For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So that's what it means to be born again, and that's how we learn to start seeing. It's the first step to start seeing what's really going on around us. But it's just the beginning. Many Christians stop there, and we're going to talk about that. You know, we've all heard this seeing is believing. The state motto of Missouri is fascinating to me. Anybody know the state motto of Missouri? 
Show me. I love that state motto. Show me. Show me. You know, the height of worldly wisdom is to be a hard-headed skeptic. I'll believe it when I see it. Will you? Really? Will you? You know, in the kingdom, we're supposed to live by faith, not by sight, and that's our battle. Sight is great if you have faith. Think of the woman at the well. She saw Jesus, and she told her whole village, come and see someone who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? But it was her faith, not her eyes, that really allowed her to see what was going on. So who, who really lives by sight? People out there in the world, they think they're living by sight, and they think that they are avoiding being deceived. Does the world really live by sight? Did it, believe, did it live by sight when it saw Christ's miracles and failed to believe? No. They saw the miracles and they didn't believe. So they, they weren't living by sight. So just as in the kingdom, we live by faith, not by sight, it's also possible to live by unbelief, not by sight. It's very possible. I don't think anybody lives by sight. I think you either live by faith or by unbelief. I don't think our sight has, we like to think that our sight has a lot to do with it. I don't think much of human reason, honestly. Our main passage today comes from John 6. And we're picking up in the wake of Jesus, feeding the 5,000. That's where this comes in. I'm not really going to eat a snack. I'm just kidding. Some of you thought I wasn't joking. So before we, re- before we read John 6, let me ask, when Jesus fed the crowd, was he really just worried about empty bellies? Remember, there's always a purpose in what he does. He's always trying to provoke a faith response and to draw us close to him. He was worried about their empty bellies, but he, there's always a, a deeper meaning. So I want to talk briefly. This is a kind of a freebie here about this miracle. I love this miracle. It's the only miracle that's in all four Gospels besides the resurrection, the feeding of the 5,000. And it's a huge food miracle. Why? <laughs> yeah. Of course, David would love the huge food miracle, right? Why, uh, but why does that? What's the significance of that? You know, food miracles are actually rare in the Old Testament. There's a few widows. Elijah helped feed a widow. Elisha helped feed a widow. But besides those, the only really big food miracle in the whole Old Testament is what? The manna and the quail, right? Now, in the ancient Near East, in this time and place, to provide food was always considered the province of the gods. For instance, in the evil religions of the Canaanites, they would sacrifice their children in order to win from the gods a um, a response to provoke agricultural fertility. Food. In other words, we sacrifice our firstborn son, and then you make sure our crops grow, our animals thrive. That was really what they did. It's very sad. And even in the Old Testament, who was the, the one person who provided huge amounts of food miraculously? It wasn't Moses. Moses was, when God told him he's going to provide food for them, he was like, how are you going to provide food for all these people? And God says, is my arm too short? Is my arm? So food miracles are always tied to the divine. Now we need to think about that when we ask ourselves, why did Jesus, what is he doing when he provided food miraculously on two separate occasions, once for 5,000, once for 4,000. What is he saying? When you think about in the fact that in this culture, to provide food miraculously was always the province of God. So in our industrialized society, you can get a loaf of bread cheap. I bought this for $1, if you can believe that, at Walmart. It probably came from China. <laughs> Back then, you'd work a whole 12-hour day of back-breaking labor in the hot sun, and you might, you might have enough money to buy bread, a loaf of bread for your family for that day. 
That's how precious this was. So when Jesus provides food for 5,000 people, don't underestimate how significant this miracle was to those people. He's carefully making a statement of who he is. Okay, so let's pick up the story in John 6, 25. It's the next day after he provides them all the miraculous food. And he has slipped away unseen. Now, the crowd, like I said, they understood the significance of that miracle. In fact, it says they tried to make him their king. Jesus had to slip away. He, had to, he couldn't walk around the lake because they were looking for him. It says that they were trying to make him king by force. They weren't interested in his opinion. They were going to just put a crown on his head and shove him towards Jerusalem. So he actually walked across the water, and the crowd's looking for him around the edge of the lake. He's walking across the water to get to the other side. That's how significant this was. Now, they had their own agenda. When I first read that passage when I was a kid, I thought, oh, cool, you know, they believed in him. But when you think about the fact that they were going to do it by force, you understand that they were trying to impose their own agenda on Jesus. They weren't interested in believing in him and learning from him. They wanted him to do what they wanted. Now, I think it wasn't just a political agenda. I think it was a gastronomical agenda. (laughs) We'll make this guy king, and maybe he'll keep providing us this free flow of magic food. But Jesus had his own ideas. So we'll pick up the story, John 6, 25. And it says, the next day, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? It's kind of like, what's up? Got any more free food for us? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. I always love it when he shows that he's not afraid of offending people. He's not afraid of, he doesn't really... Um, flatter anybody. He just says exactly what it is. He's just very direct. No fear of man in this guy. He goes on to say, don't you, sorry, let me find where I am here. He goes on, oh, so he goes on to say, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Now Jesus' answer here is very important. It's the theme of the whole book of John and really a key to understanding the entire Bible. He said, it says, Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. A lot of times Christians think that means just to get saved. But we're called to keep believing everything Jesus tells us from that moment on. A lot of times people get saved and Jesus then tells them something new. A promise. I'll take care of you. I'll provide for you. I'm your healer. I've made you worthy. All these things that he tells you to help you overcome your problems. And we're supposed to keep believing. And that's where our battle is. This is the work of God for you. To believe on the one he has sent. Now, we know this crowd wanted that bread. They had hiked up their first century robes and scrambled around the edge of that lake for miles on the off chance that they would find Jesus to get more free miracle bread. It must have been some good bread. They're ready to work. What work must we do? They were ready to roll their sleeves up. He could have told them to dig a ditch. He could have told them to stack firewood. Whatever it took to get that free bread, they were going to do it. But they weren't ready to believe. It's interesting to me that the human condition in our natural flesh finds it easier to do manual labor to get bread than to choose faith. I hate manual labor. Faith is a lot more fun. I don't know what the... I don't want to be like that. Now, of course, Jesus is Jesus. He didn't give them any tedious or laborious work, did he? Believe in me. 
That's the work I have for you. Believe in me. You've seen the miracle? The last time someone did anything like that, it was God the Father himself. No one's done anything like that since God the Father did it. I've done, I am doing, I will do all the hard work. What I want from you, only believe. Everything he does and doesn't do is always intended to draw us to himself. And here's their tragic response, verse 30. So they asked him, what miraculous sign will you do, hint, hint, in order to show us? That then will you, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe? What's the context here? They had just seen him feed 5,000 people the, the day before. They'd eaten the miracle. And now they're like, well, do a miracle and then we'll believe. What are they really hinting at? This isn't faith, is it? This is an attempt to control him. Remember, they wanted to make him king by force. Psalm 78, 18 describes the children of Israel in the desert before God gave them manna. They, it says they willfully put God to the test by demanding the food they craved. Does that sound familiar? When we want something from God but we aren't willing to put our faith in him, he knows it will do us no good to give us the things that we're demanding. Because he's, the real thing that we need is always that relationship. So when they go to him and try to control him, it won't do them any good if he gives them more bread. Because they've already chosen not to believe. It's no good going to him with an agenda, wanting control. You can ask him for what you want, but the idea is always to go to him with humility. So here's what they say. What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. When was the last time somebody quoted scripture to Jesus, trying to get him to do it, <laughs> what they wanted? So Jesus says to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who gave you, who has given you the bread from heaven. Like I said, it wasn't Moses. But it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Man, they can't get the bread out of their head. <laughs> Give me, give me, whatever, whatever, just give me the bread. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. The crowd starts grumbling. They complain back and forth. Eventually, they all leave angry. Even some of his disciples abandoned him. The 12 remain, but there was 5,000 men the day before. As soon as the free flow of food stops... They're out of there. If you want to be thankful for something, be thankful that you don't have to spend eternity as one of the people who received that miracle and heard that message from his loving face and walked away angry. Now, maybe some of them got saved later, and I hope that that happened. But we need to be determined that will not be me because he's still offering the bread of life to us today. He still has the loving eyes, the loving face, and he's still extending himself to us today. We're not going to walk away angry, are we? Okay, someone said no. At least someone said no. Okay, that's good. We're in a position to make a different choice. Jesus is saying to you, I am the bread of life. What does it mean that he's saying that to you today? What does that mean for you? Well, if you're not a believer, you know that it means get right with God. Remember what he said to become born again. Believe in the one he has sent. 
He has already done all the hard work. All we have to do is believe. Now, for those of us here who have already taken that first wonderful bite, and I bet you're glad you did, is there anything else for us, for the believer? What did he say? He said, you will be fully satisfied. You will never hunger and thirst again when you receive the bread of life. Who understands he's not talking about your bellies when he says that? He's talking about life satisfaction. He's talking about heart satisfaction. Now, there's a lot of depression in the church. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of defeat. And I'm not looking at you when I say that. There's a lot. The enemy is trying to go after us. And Jesus is trying to go after us, too. He wants to fully satisfy you. He doesn't want you just to be saved, but then to kind of limp your way through life. He wants you to be thriving. And that's what he's talking about in this passage. A dissatisfied soul is at its root a spiritual problem. Here's what I think. You can take this for what you want. I don't have a verse for this, but this is what I think. I think in the kingdom, a dissatisfied soul means the Christian has not sought for a word in the face of a problem or is not believing a word which has already been given about yourself or about that situation. Whatever it is, whatever it is, there's a word for you from Scripture. There's a word for you in the kingdom. Sometimes you get it prophetically. Sometimes you get it from a from a fellow believer. And when we aren't believing that word, you know, he gives you that word for a reason. It's important for, you, for us to believe whatever that is in the face of whatever we're facing, in the face of that trial, that situation. There's a word for you. And when we believe that word, we step into the satisfaction he wants to give us. Okay, now, question for you. Do you remember what Jesus said to the devil when the devil tempted him to break his 40-day fast and turn a rock into a loaf of bread? Yes, he's the word of God. He said, uh, Matthew 4, 4, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, we all have heard that verse. Now, whenever Jesus says it is written, he's going back to the Old Testament. So I was curious, and I went back to Deuteronomy 8, which he quotes, and I want to briefly look at this with you. Moses is speaking to the Israelites, and he says this in verse 2, remember how the Lord your God had led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Why does manna teach them to rely on God's word? Well, think about their situation. A desert wilderness is empty of food. It's a dire situation. In the natural world, it was impossible. It says there were two million of them wandering through an empty desert. That's not the situation I would want to be in. And it says he allowed their hunger to see if they would turn to him in faith or turn against him in despair. And they remembered, yes, we were slaves in Egypt, but at least we had food. What have you done leading us out to this desert? But God knew all he had to do was speak one word. One word, and the desert blossomed with the bread of heaven. For miles around, it was so much food, it was more than the two million people could eat every day for 40 years. Every day for 40 years. And it was good bread, too. It was better than this Walmart bread. It was, it said that it was honey bread. Doesn't that sound delicious? Okay, so bear with me here. John 6, remember, we learned that the true bread of heaven is not a thing. The true bread of heaven is a person. Thank you, Jesus, for that. John 6, 41, I am the bread that came down from heaven. It's a person. At the same time, in Deuteronomy 8, we hear another description of 
the true bread of heaven. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So this might sound a bit quirky to you, but if the bread of heaven is Jesus, and if the bread of heaven is every word spoken from the mouth of God, then every promise you've been given is Jesus. Every word you've been given for your situation is Jesus. So for instance, I always feel, I have to remind myself that God promised to help me preach. Every time I preach, I get, in my flesh, I want to get nervous. And I have to remind myself, God promised he would help me preach. And so I can think to myself, his promise to help me preach is Jesus. His promise to heal you is Jesus. His promise to provide for you, it's Jesus. I really feel encouraged by that. I don't know 100% what it means, but I'm really excited by that revelation. So, we're going to keep on going. Let's look back at that situation they were in. They were out in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by the desert for miles around. They had no food. Now, I get mad when I have to drive a mile to Winco. I don't like that I have to drive a mile to get to the store. I feel like I should be praying and getting that man there. Don't you guys want to? Why should it just be for them? I wouldn't mind a few quail either, actually. You may be facing a difficult situation. It may be a difficult person, a health problem, financial challenge, all of life's knocks and bruises, the devil's lies, something the enemy is using to keep you from entering into your promised land. Deuteronomy 8, God says he allows certain situations. He allowed their hunger to humble them and to test them, to know what was in their hearts, whether or not they would keep his commands. What he wanted from them in the midst of their hunger was for them to, in gratitude, thank you for saving me from Egypt. Now we're hungry. Thank you for the food you're going to give me. And he would have probably given them even better manna if they had done that. (laughs) What does he tell them about the reason he allowed the difficulty? Because sometimes we think, why would God allow this problem in the first place? He knew they were going to blow it. He allowed it anyway, so what happened? He tells them in verse 14 of Deuteronomy 8 that they will go to the promised land. They will experience an overflow and abundance of food. It's going to be, it really is the land of milk and honey. And what's going to happen to their hearts in the midst of that? He says, your hearts might become proud and you might forget the Lord your God. He goes on to say, in that case, they would turn to idols. And then verse 19, you will surely be destroyed which is in fact what happened. They turned to idols and they were dragged off to Babylon. He was trying to prevent that by teaching them to rely on him. That was the reason he allowed that difficulty to happen. It was for their good. In other words, the promised land is useless to those who haven't learned to believe because you just lose it. They ended up losing the whole thing. They got carried off to Babylon. When Jesus fed the crowd... What did most of them get out of that outstanding miracle? They got one meal. They got one meal, fish and bread. And in a few hours, they were hungry again, and they walked away with nothing. They saw nothing. They understood nothing. We're not going to be like that. God didn't send your hurts. He didn't send your problems. The worst thing you can think is God sent that. He didn't send it. But sometimes he allows things. He allows a situation to arise, and he he allows a need to arise. Because he wants to fulfill that need himself. To prepare you for the full promised land that he wants to give you. In the end, a true promised land is not attractive land. It's walking with him. He promised us, John 6.35, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never go hungry. 
and the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. We need to fully understand what that means. It means that to the degree that we believe on Jesus Christ, to that degree, we are fully satisfied. So, our personal happiness is important because the world needs to see that we're walking in joy so they can be attracted to the kingdom. And you want to be happy, right? The way for you to be fully satisfied in your life and to walk in victory, believe on Jesus Christ. In every situation, there's always a word for you. There's always a promise for you. Oftentimes we hear a word and it goes right to the situation and then we kind of forget it. We kind of move on and we don't savor it and dwell on it and really take it in. That's, I think, the most common way that we disbelieve is through carelessness. To the degree that we believe on Jesus Christ, to that degree we are fully satisfied. All right. Well, let's end in prayer. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our bread of life. Thank you that you are not just that first bite that saves us, but you are a continual feast. And we declare over everyone here and everyone watching that we are not going to wander off from your table and start staring at our problems. We're not going to let the enemy disrupt our feast. We are going to sit with you and we're going to eat bite after bite until you transformed us into total victory, into the life that you want to give us and the people you want us to be. Thank you, Jesus. You are our bread of life all the time, every day, fully satisfying us. And for anyone here who has not yet received you, has not yet taken that first bite, do a quick work in their heart, and I pray they will receive you right now. If you know that you're not right with God, and you know you need to take that first bite to be saved, I'm going to have everyone close your eyes and and look down. And if you know today is your day to take that first bite, to say yes to Jesus is yes to you, catch my eye. Everybody here is saved. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Let's give God a clap. Stand up. Thank you, David. I gave David a prophetic word uh, before the sermon that people are going to be eating the bread of life as he was talking about the bread of life. Did you do that? Did you enjoy that bread? Aren't you glad that Jesus is always present with us to Fulfill our deepest needs and feeding on him. Praise God. But we'll be dismissed. Just know God loves you. We love you. God's going to give you a great week. Amen.